Hello, welcome back to the Going Coastal podcast, the podcast of the Students and New Professionals chapter of the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association and hosted by none other than the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Marissa Torres. And I'm your other co-host, John Miller. And for this month's episode, we are going back to our professional development series. This time we have on Dr. Brett Webb, a professor and the director of the Center for Applied Coastal Engineering and Science at the University of Southern Alabama, as well as Temi Tope Idowu, or Temi, a PhD student at the University of Delaware. They're here to join us to talk about and how to, how to navigate that student advisor relationship, whether you're uh, an undergrad, maybe more toward, focused towards the graduate student level, uh, master's or PhD. Um, so Brett here is an advisor. He was also a student once who had an advisor, and Temi is a current student. So we're looking forward to getting their perspective, and I'm sure jo- John and I um, have both been students, and now John is an advisor to some folks. So we have... Uh, some perspectives to go through today, and I hope this is helpful for you guys navigating this relationship as well. So welcome, Dr. Webb, or Brett, and Temi. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We're happy to have you on. It's uh, more of a sensitive topic. Sometimes it depends on on that relationship, and that's why we're here to kind of poke it uh, and explore it. So how would we usually run this show is we'll start by getting to know our guests. So uh, Dr. Webb, let us know, uh, you know, what was... What is your academic background? Like, what was your um, path or journey to where you are now? So it was fairly direct in terms of how one might, you know, kind of progress through preparation for a career in academia, Um, a lot more direct than most. Um, I did my undergraduate degree, a Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering at the University of Florida. Um, I'm from Southwest Florida, kind of going to the University of Florida was always something that was in my mind. It's just uh, an eventuality. This is going to happen. We've had tons of family members go through there. Of course, being a resident of Florida was, you know, had scholarship opportunities available too. So that certainly helped. Uh, But I actually had a fortunate, very fortunate experience as a high school student of all things, where I found the profession of coastal engineering in high school. So at a much younger age than most people find it. So I was kind of laser focused and knew what I wanted to do and knew that graduate school was a necessity for what I wanted to do, you know, in terms of the things I wanted to accomplish in my professional career. So I knew go to the University of Florida, get a civil engineering degree, stay for a master's degree in coastal and ocean engineering from that wonderful program, and then go be a consultant and just make tons of money um, and just live the good life. And a funny thing happened along the way, and I kind of fell in love with the research and the academic lifestyle. So was fortunate to receive a fellowship uh, from the University of Florida State for my PhD. And so I did the thing that you're not supposed to do in academia. I got all three degrees from the same place. Uh, And that's, you know, evidently, quote unquote, frowned upon. I'm doing air quotes right now. Uh, But, you know, at the time, many, many moons ago, almost 20 years ago, thinking about all the educational opportunities you had for a coastal engineering PhD in the United States. I mean, could I move just to move? Yeah. But did it really make sense at the time? No, not at all. 
so I had a very direct route to academia, kind of figured out along the way that's what I wanted to do, uh, and then ended up landing a faculty gig at the University of South Alabama, uh, and just everything fell into place. So for me, it was was very direct, very linear, um, and uh, just all kind of happened. I wouldn't say by chance, um, because I knew, you know, graduating from high school that I wanted to be in coastal engineering. Uh, just wasn't quite sure what that that looked like in terms of a professional career uh, until I settled on the PhD as a grad student. So you uh, you gave up on being rich and famous and just decided to settle with famous. Um, I'd maybe infamous, John. Definitely not the famous part. Um, yeah, you know it, it's kind of one of those things where uh, it's the old joke of um, you know what's the difference between academia and consulting? In academia, you get to choose which eighty hours of the week you work. Um, and that's not necessarily true, but it's kind of true. Uh, and one of the things that really kind of, in, you know, I found endearing about the academic world was that uh, you did have this flexibility uh, that was kind of unparalleled and, and you really couldn't find in other places. Very cool. Very cool. Great introduction. Um, Timmy, what about you? Obviously a little bit younger, uh, a lot younger, uh, more, uh, less experienced than, uh, Brett and myself, Brett and I are contemporaries. So when I say that, I say that from a, a place where, where, we're, we're both, uh, call it mid career at this point. Um, it's a place of love. It's a place of love. 100%. Um, so Timmy, tell us a little bit about your background and, uh, how you found, uh, found coastal. Um, okay. So, um, like I said earlier, my name is Timmy. Um, so in full, that's the mid-topper. So um, I I think I took a rather longer route to where I am today. Um, so I've, I'm from I'm originally from Nigeria. And uh, so I had my bachelor's degree in civil engineering. So, and that was uh, back in 2012. So then I, um, so after that, I went into the industry. So I dabbled into some other aspects of civil engineering. I did a little bit of structures. I, I went into transport engineering. But three years down the line, I, I kind of got bored a little bit, and um, and also there was um, there was an, a, a huge flooding. So I'm from the southwestern part of Nigeria, and um, so there was this huge flood that happened. I think sometimes around. 2012 also, so which was um, close to when I had my bachelor's. So that kind of, um, it was a really devastating flood. And that kind of opened my eyes to the environmental impact of, you know, some of these um, issues like storms and floods and the rest. So I think my interest started growing from there. So in 2015, I, I was fortunate to get this, um, so the, it's an African Union scholarship to um to pursue a master's degree in civil and environmental engineering so that took me to kenya um so that was in 2015 yeah so on starting the program i think by that time i was um, already gearing towards coastal related research so i i did things on groundwater pollution seawater intrusion and and the likes and so i think from there I already knew I really wanted to to carve a niche for myself in coastal engineering. Um, so I finished that in um, in 2017, and then I was fortunate. I think by that time I kind of fell in love with academia. So I I was fortunate 
enough to 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 get um so they call it is an assistant lecturer position um in technical university of kenya so that was in 2017 uh, so there it's um it's more the equivalent of that in the us is um is um there's really no direct equivalent, but it's like an assistant professor position here in the US. The only difference is um, because I only had a master's, I could only teach and um, um, supervise undergraduate students. So I think, so I did that for about four years. And so that kind of gave me, and I think I really enjoyed it, um, interacting with um, with students. And of course I was, I was in my, mid to late 20s at the time so meaning i was interacting with um with folks who were not so so um the age difference wasn't that much so i think they, they so they found me quite um, relatable and um so i think from there it, it gave me an idea of what i because i because since i was fortunate to enough to supervise undergraduate students it kind of gave me an idea of what i also wanted if I needed to pursue a PhD in civil engineering. And so um, so I started my PhD in civil engineering in um, 2020. So that was in the middle of the pandemic. And um, so I was, <laughs> I had to take some of my classes online back in Kenya before um, I moved in, in uh, moved in 2021. Um, but I must say that bulk of what I learned before I started the PhD program helped number one in the choice of my advisor, and also how I've been able to navigate our relationship since I started my PhD program. Wow, very, very interesting. It's I, I think it's a uh, it's kind of interesting. I think um, Brett's path is actually probably from what we've heard in thirty episodes now of going coastal uh, less less common. I think it's you know one of the things we talk about frequently um, on the podcast is how do we you know get people to you know, find this career path earlier on. Brett seemed to have found it immediately in high school, whereas Temi, your your path seems very similar to a lot of our guests where start out doing either civil or environmental and, you know, ultimately through a, you know, a singular event or a series of events just end up, you know, capturing your interest and getting into the the path. Uh, So uh, really, uh, really quite interesting. Yeah, I'm wondering how... um... If you could explain more about your jump from starting a PhD in Kenya in 2020 and then moving to the U.S. and coming to University of Delaware in 2021, how did um, that happen? Um, so because of the COVID and, and all that, um, I couldn't secure a, um, a visa because all embassies were closed. I mean, literally everything was 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 on hold. Everything, everywhere was shut down. And... Um, so even the university where I was um, lecturing at the time, it was also shut down. So the question was, are you just going to wait and um, literally not doing much, even though I was doing some little personal um, research? So uh, my advisor and I just decided, oh, we could, after all, most people who are also resuming will all be taking their classes virtually. So that was how it was easy for me to take the classes virtually. And before I secured um, the visa to resume in January 2021. So what I found challenging in that was the time difference. So the time difference between the East Coast um, and Kenya at the time was about 
um, seven hours, and then daylight time started, I think, towards the end of or middle of November. So it jumped to eight hours. So we had this um, this particular lecture, lecturer or professor who who prefers evening classes. When I mean evening classes, like 6 p.m., 7 p.m. So that translated to like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. Uh, in Kenya. So that was a bit uh, challenging. But um, I think it's, it's, it went well. It went well. That is that is dedication, yeah. sir. <laughs> it's it's okay. Most of my students sleep through my classes anyway, and they don't have a time difference, so it's no different. He's not taking it personally. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, actually, um, full disclosure, we should we should mention this early on. I think in the in the the podcast here that you know one of our co-hosts, our other co-host Deb, is actually one of Brett's students. So we should just kind of put that on the table. We did offer her. The opportunity to conduct this, you know, interview, and she basically said, "Hey, you know, I've always told you know, if, if you don't have anything nice to say about somebody, you don't say anything at all." So she very politely declined <laughs> and put it on to Marissa right. and I. Yeah, there's that conflict news. of interest. <laughs> that was probably the right call, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I no, mean, just... we're a small coastal field. John and I keep cycling through our own personal contacts for guests on this show. So I'm excited to like expand, bring Deb on so she can expand to her personal contacts. And now we have an in in Southern Alabama. Now we have an in with Udell. So I'm just excited to have everybody on and exploit your network. I mean, interview your wonderful colleagues. Well, in the interest of full disclosure, I should also mention that I am a longtime listener, first time caller. Stop. Uh, really? So, yes. I I have not missed too many of these podcast episodes. Um, well, you've probably listened to more episodes than I have. My goodness. <laughs> well, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> full disclosure. Just, Nobody likes we'll listening just delete to their that. own voice. <laughs> Fix that in post. Fix that in post. No, it's, it really is a, a great service that you all provide. I mean, the entire podcast network has, to me, been transformational for our kind of connectivity in our networking and learning about the things that we do and all the just the diversity of, of issues and projects and personalities uh, within this field. Uh, it's truly amazing. And so the, the podcast network allows all this to become reality. Yeah. Did you get that, Tyler? You can use that as a plug for American Shoreline Podcast Network, <laughs> ASPN, Going Coastal. True, true. Advertise. No, sorry. But thank you. It's awesome. I'm glad it is actually making an impact and that people are actually listening to it. That does feel really nice. So speaking of impact, uh, speaking of impact, let's let's just dig into it. Just jump right in and start to talk about the student advisor relationship. So I guess we'll start with Brett, maybe, um, and just get some, uh, you know, broad, general, overarching perspective on establishing relationships with your students. You know, you can go in any direction you want, and then we'll just kind of uh, go off of that and see where we end up. We'll just leave it wide open. Wide, wide open. <laughs> Well, I will maybe start just somewhat randomly, um, maybe kind of at the end and, and work back to the beginning because my approach to mentoring students 
uh, and supervising them, but also managing the personal relationships has, has changed over time. Um, now I find that my approach to working with the students is very different. I think, well, as opposed to what it was when I started doing this um, about 17 years ago, I think some of that is a result of just me growing as a person. Some of it is a result of me being more in tune with things that are happening um, in the lives of our students and the things that they need. Um, but a lot of it is just learning through experience of kind of what works and what doesn't work, but also understanding what you need to provide them in terms of a framework or direct supervision or support, whatever it is to help them achieve their professional goals. Um, and I think this is going to continue to be a moving target as long as I do this. My, my approach needs to be flexible and adaptable uh, to the needs of the specific student, but also the needs of the time. You think about how much our students have changed in the past 17 to 20 years. Um, it's quite significant. Uh, so something that I would maybe provide or some a way that I would interact with students uh, when I first started my career is is in many cases, very different than how I do that today. A part of it too is just, like I mentioned, is me growing personally um, and being more in tune, um, I guess maybe being more human and less robotic um, and allowing some more of the compassionate side to kind of, I wouldn't say dictate how I enter into those relationships, but at least allows it to regulate it a little bit. And again, that comes from just personal and life experience. Um, one of the things that has probably transformed me anything more than anything of being um, a supervisor, an advisor, a mentor, or whatever you call it, is just me being a parent too, and trying to look at my students through the lens of, you know, what do my kids need from me? Not that my students are my kids, but thinking about the relationship of how do you develop an environment where they can thrive. What do they need? What are the things that they need from you directly? What are the things that they need from you indirectly? When is it appropriate to step in and kind of redirect, you know, their effort versus when is it appropriate to just kind of let them struggle and, and fail a little bit? Uh, so again, this is this has changed over time and I suspect it will continue to change as, as long as I do this. That's a, that's, that's a great perspective. And I was going to jokingly say that you've softened over, with age, but I, I think the, the reality is, you know, I expected you, I could have almost, I could have almost transcribed that answer for you, knowing you as a person and knowing my own experiences and, and how similar they are. And everything you said, I, I agree a hundred percent with in terms of just you know, having to evolve over time and to adapt and, you know, to deal with new things like people working remotely and dealing with students over Zoom sometimes instead of in person and, you know, things that we didn't, challenges we didn't have necessarily when Brett and I were both starting our, our careers. So um, I, I very much agree about that. Uh, you know, over time, you just, you, you have to evolve. And, and, the parenting comment is another one that I certainly, as, as somebody who's got a, a junior and a senior in high school who's going to be going off to college, right? You think about the relationships that you have with your students, you know, and in my case, sometimes with undergraduates and 
and what I want, you know, what type of relationship I want my daughter to have with her advisors, right? So all of that kind of plays a role and shapes kind of your own perspectives as a as an advisor. So very uh, very cool answer. I agree one hundred percent with it. I think too part of that, John, is uh, you know early on we are. I don't know, maybe this is not true of everybody, but but it certainly wasn't me. Like with the benefit of hindsight, I can look back at all the things I did wrong, of all the ways that I was not open, that I was maybe too forceful. Maybe my expectations were kind of incongruent with, you know, what the students were going to be able to achieve or whatever it was. And some of that really I think boils down to imposter syndrome, which is still very relevant for me today. Uh, but, but it was more so true when I first began this process and thinking about, oh my gosh, I need to, I need to act like I'm this authority figure and I need to make sure that, you know, they respect me and that, you know, that I'm not challenged because honestly, I'm really just trying to make sure that they don't like see all of my flaws and all the things that I don't know. So, you try and establish yourself as an intellectual authority early on by maybe being a little closed off. At least that's what I did, or maybe having expectations that are just unrealistic. And I think as you grow as a person, but also as you grow in your profession and become more confident um, in what you know, but also, you know, I guess have enough humility to admit what you don't know that allows these relationships to evolve and for you to be more open as a person over time, uh, which I think is beneficial to the students. Um, so maybe I should go back and, and maybe issue like apologies, like, like send little postcards to all of my, you know, early students and like, you know, uh, dear Richard, I really apologize for how I supervised you as a graduate student. Um, but it's just part of life. I think it's just being understanding and open to, and willing to change. Yeah, I think I think the older we get, we sort of get the built-in respect because of the gray hair, or in my case, the lack of hair, or in some people's case, the the professor beard that they grow, right? So then you automatically get the respect that perhaps uh, early on you were trying to gain through the the way that you approached your students. But um, so, Temi, uh, are you uh, did? Are you ready to switch switch schools and switch advisors and and run over to Brett and work with Brett at this point? Ooh, wow, burn! <laughs> <laughs> that was very, very strong. All right. Well, this no, is, no, this no, is fun, no, folks. No, I'll, don't I'll, get me wrong. I'll, don't get I'll me tune wrong. In and listen no, don't to get me outtakes. wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> All right. So not because uh, Brett is uh, John are not amazing people. Uh, I mean, from what I've um, heard in the last couple of minutes, um, I believe uh, they are just trying to be humble about how good they are. I, that's that's my perception so far. So but the reason I said I wouldn't want to trade um, places with my advisor is um, my advisor is an amazing person. I, I I don't know if he was like this at the early, I mean, it was really this amazing at the early stage of his career and then. He also grew over time, and then I just met the best version of him. Or he's always been that way. But all I know is, um, um, I made the best choice of an advisor, and and so um, I I think I'm free to mention his name. Some of us probably know him. So it's um, Jack Puleo, um, of University of Delaware. 
Oh boy. Um, oh boy, yeah. not Jack. Yeah. Bre- so I mean, <laughs> can, uh, uh, can we reschedule my interview for a different episode? I don't. I don't. I don't. What's going well, on? <laughs> I don't want to be on the same podcast as a student that's got Jack as an advisor. I'm. I, I'm going to look horrible. <laughs> no, so, this is ridiculous. Just, like, let's stop right now. I just. No, no, no. <laughs> this no is actually comparison. an episode of Punked. Um, well, as long no. as we can transition into an episode of Cribs next, we'll be fine. <laughs> so, no, but um, on a serious note, um, I'm not. I'm not saying he doesn't have his flaws or anything, but I think overall is an amazing person, and uh, I think what also helped was uh, some of the lessons Brett shared a few minutes ago. In a way, I could um, identify with some of them, uh, so it helped shape what I was, was I what I was looking for in an in an advisor. So so at the point where I was gonna make my decision, I actually had like um, three or four um offers to choose from. Uh so I needed to do my background check, you know, and all of that to before I concluded that Jack was probably the best uh, person um to to work with. Um so yeah. what is it about Jack? What uh, what are the things that he does that make him a, a good advisor? What are the qualities that he has that you um, specifically sought out and respect now? Um, okay. So my first interaction with him, uh, I read a few things. He has won a couple of teaching awards in the past. Uh, but of course, being a great teacher doesn't translate to being a great advisor. Um, so I went through his profile, and then so when we eventually had our first conversation, um, I saw he was a um, straight to the point kind of person. This is what we want to do. So there was a lot of clarity with uh, with what he needs or what he expects. So I imagined that I was not going to have communication issues with him because I was we're going to have clear expectations about what we really want out of um, the, out of our relationship. And secondly, um, I mean, that was the one of the main reasons why I, um, I went with him. So it was still a kind of blank check, not really knowing what to expect. I had my fears, though, because there was this document he sent to, to, he usually does send all those documents to all his prospective students. And in that document, he was literally saying things like, um, what a good grad student looks like and what a great grad student looks like. A great a good grad student would work the minimum required hours, maybe 20 hours, 30 hours. You know, by 4 p.m., he has packed his bags, ready to leave the office or the lab. But a great grad student will... It, so he listed all of those qualities. But one thing that caught my attention there was that the fact that he works about 65 to 70 hours a week. And even though he doesn't expect that of his students... Um, he still expects some level of uh, some 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 level of hard work. So that kind of shook me a little bit. That I hope I'm not going to end up with uh, um, a workaholic. But then on resuming, finally, I mean that was the only fear I had. So it wasn't like I I hundred percent knew what I was going into. Uh, but he allayed my fears when we started working together. So the first thing I noticed about him was um, he had high standards. 
And that was also what I was looking out for. I, of course, I wanted to do something something great. Since I was catching, I was trying to carve a niche for myself in coastal engineering. Um, so I I was fine with that because I was kind of a workaholic. I mean, kind of. Of course, not at the level of Jack before I I came. So he is on another level on on being a workaholic. However. What where he balances that workaholic side of him is that he is extremely human. Human, he has um he has empathy, so he can come forcefully. Oh, you have to do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But when you sit down together and then he shows you have made effort on something, and that you're still struggling or lagging behind in terms of time. Um, it comes down to that. He recalibrates his expectation, and then he's like, "Okay, let's get this done." He, and then he also leads by his example. So um, I, I I realized if he's telling if if Jack is telling you to do fifteen things, trust me, literally Jack must have done forty. So he doesn't give what he. I mean, he doesn't place expectations on others that he himself hasn't done way beyond that. So I think I, I saw that leadership in him. So those qualities of um, empathy, so I'll call it empathy, is human. It deals with, he sees us as humans, basically. And I'm not talking for myself alone. I think even with his other grad students, um, he is a workaholic, but at the same time, he's empathetic. And secondly, um, he um, he, um, how would I put it? And in that, that part of him being, um, you know, him being a leader, you know, he's able to, he, he, he leads by example. We've done, we've done some works. I mean, real hard, read where we're carrying every stuffs, every sensors. And trust me, Jack is, um, is a 50 year old. I mean, is I, I usually tell him, I said, in terms of physical fitness, Jack is in the top maybe 0.01% of the fittest 50-year-olds I've met. He's really strong. So we, even though he's a professor, a full professor, he's also the chair of the department, he's not going to stand aloof and tell the students, oh, you do that. No, we are all getting our hands dirty, you know. So when I see those things, I'm just like, wow. Um, I haven't seen this where I was coming from. And so it was something really inspiring for me. Interesting. So I guess to, to sum up some of those, um, maybe the workaholic is the, the high standards, the high expectations. He can recalibrate as he needs to, to, you know, as long as you're actually putting in effort and he can see that. Um, but his workaholicism, I guess, sounds like he really loves his job uh, and his research. And I feel like that's more, it, it can be rare um, in some instances, but it's. I feel like it. It could be hard to come by, and that that's maybe what makes um, separates a good advisor from a less good advisor. The the clear, uh, clear communication, um, setting. As you mentioned clear, setting expectations both for the relationship. Does he also have clear expectations for the research itself? Yes, so basically he expects um, high standards, um, especially when we need to come up with papers or come up with manuscripts. Um, initially, I would say I had lots of um, issues because sometimes the way um, um, it critiques, criticizes your work, 
uh, you know, it can be blunt sometimes. So, so, and then, but then after, even after the conversation, he's going to be like, hey, Tammy, um, you know, sometimes when I'm crit criticizing this, I mean, your work or here or doing thing, this, it's not that um, I want to hurt your feelings or anything. Uh, and then, and so we, I, I, I think I, I, I kind of understand that side of him. So, so for instance, this conference we're coming for, uh, I mean, it's, it's a conference. It's not a, um, going to be a peer reviewed paper, but the way Jack has criticized my, uh, what my presentation is going to look like, it's like, wow. So, but I think over time I've come to see that it means well. So I see beyond, um, in, you know, criticizing the work. I mean, be, I mean, see beyond what he's doing to his intentions. So what he expects, he expects high standards of you, but at the same time, he is, um, I mean, he's a very chilled person. Um, he will still give you, the, the, I mean, and sometimes when he sees you're really getting um, hit up, actually he tones down. And um, yeah, and I think it's, he's, yeah, he doesn't, he has high expectations, that's what I would say, uh, but he's very human with it. If I read into that a little bit, right, the, you know, one of the the, the really important things is the communication uh, and the, uh, you know, the, the ability to communicate. But I think to me, it sounds like through that communication, you've developed a, a level or a sense of trust in him so that, and I think that's important to develop that trust. And, you know, sometimes it's, not quite so easy to do, but I, I, you know, I, I sit here and I'm taking some notes on this, right? The fact that Jack puts this, I mean, we all try to communicate. I'm sure Brett tries to communicate as well with his students about the expectations and try to be as clear as possible. But the fact that Jack actually writes it down and, you know, has the guts to actually put into what he writes down, the fact that, hey, a good student works a certain amount and a great student works even more, um, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty impressive because, you know, there is the threat that it's going to scare certain people away. And maybe that's the point you want to scare certain people away, but you know, it's, it's impressive that he's able to, um, you know, he's willing to communicate that up front. So, yeah. So, and I think that communication I mean, or that trust was gained from the fact that he sees you first of all, as a human being and not a number, you know, he sees you for being a human being, first of all. So, um, and I think his first interaction with people, yeah, he tries to be official and all, but you, you only need a couple of conversations with each other before you get to know each other more on a personal level. I mean, not details. We, you, you don't have to share all the details of each other's lives with each other, but he, he communicates with you as a human. He is interested in also in knowing what are your interests, you know, what's... what's yeah, I mean, for instance, he didn't know I was a night person, and Jack is a morning person. So we we we, we had those issues where um, uh, I get I mean I get mails to work on something during the day, and then I send it late in the night, and then and then it wakes up in the morning. Or times when we go for um, for future um, for research, and then we have to wake up early to to leave for the lab or to the field. And then 9 a.m. or 10 a.m., everybody had gone to bed and Timmy is still awake because he's a night bird. I mean, he's a, he's a night owl. So I think we had those those issues. But first of all, seeing you as a human um, really helped to, to, to build that trust. So I think that's a great segue maybe to, to ask Brett about, 
how he goes about building that trust between his students and himself. Yeah, I was just going to comment on, uh, I think, uh, Timmy, I would agree with 100% of everything you said about Jack. And, and just in the interest of, of full disclosure, Jack is literally my academic brother from another mother because we both had the same advisor. Now, I don't know to what degree that how we advise students was necessarily informed by our relationships with with our same advisor at the University of Florida um, because he does a lot of things differently than than how I do them and, and what I do. And I, I aspire to a level of greatness that, that Jack has attained. Uh, we'll surely never get there because Jack's just on a different level. Um, Jack actually served as my supervisor uh, for a summer fellowship at Naval Research Lab. Uh, and that's when I first met him. Um, and we continue to have a, a relationship after that. Uh, he's, he's definitely uh, high energy, um, but, but Timmy's absolutely right. He would never expect somebody else to do something that he wouldn't do himself multiplied by 10. Um, but the other thing about seeing your, your students, um, that the people that you're supervising as human, for me has been understanding that they're your colleagues. And so you, you are preparing, they're your colleagues when they are your students, but you're also preparing them to be better professionals when they leave school. Um, and I think that there are two very, like if you had to paint supervising graduate students or students in general on research into two very broad strokes, one of those strokes is absolutely preparing them to be better professionals, preparing them for their career. The other broad stroke is essentially utilizing them to accomplish objectives or goals on a research project. And that mindset, the difference between those two mindsets can have a big impact on the relationship between the student and advisor, in my opinion. Now, I know there are lots of different types of advisors out there, lots of different types of styles in terms of how you create and set expectations, how you check in with them, how you evaluate or assess their work and how you provide critiques. But to me, when I started treating my students as colleagues um, and less as employees, as workers, as people that were just, you know, a means to an end in terms of like getting stuff done on projects, uh, the relationship changed pretty significantly, I think. Uh, so I do try and set a framework for them to work within as young professionals that, you know, here's what we need to accomplish. I, I kind of give every student a study plan semester by semester. This is what you're going to do for coursework. This is what I expect to get done in terms of milestones at the end of every semester for the thesis. And I kind of let them work within that relatively loose framework and I let them succeed and I also let them fail. And this is somewhat maybe came back to haunt me a little bit during COVID because I didn't really push the students maybe as hard as I should have to make sure that they were making adequate progress through the program. So maybe I, I kind of let them struggle a little bit too much and I should have stepped in and, and done a course correction uh, earlier. Uh, but I allowed the project to be their project and the research to be their research. And I try not to kind of exert my will on it too much. And that really goes to, to writing styles and presentation styles too, that I think early on in my career, I tried to make every paper that was written, every presentation that was created, every poster that was drafted, 
how I would do it. And that was really taking the individualism away from the students and also taking a lot of the creativity and problem solving away from them too. Um, so I do let them struggle, but in those struggles, the end result then becomes a product that they have created, not necessarily one that I envisioned for them, if that makes any sense. It makes, it, it makes a ton of sense, you know, and it's, it's also something that I've, you know, struggled with, particularly on the writing side, you know, you get to that point where you're, you know, you, you like, you like things to sound the way that you want them to sound. And then it's, you know, each person has their own voice, their own style. And you have to, you know, my sense, in, in my case, I've had to learn to kind of be a little bit more hands off. You know, some of my early students, if you were to look at their, you know, this is because this is because I'm old, right? So back in the day, when you just like print stuff out, and then you'd actually, with a red pen, kind of go through it, like some of the uh, amount of red ink that I went through is kind of insane. But over time, I've learned to kind of step back and, you know, let them, you know, discuss the work the way that they just that they see it, right? And it, 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 right, it often comes up to be comes out to be better and certainly something that the students can take more ownership over. So that's definitely a lesson learned. Yeah. And unfortunately for me, I didn't really learn that lesson until pretty recently. Um, I wish I would have learned it earlier in my career, but uh, the person that taught me that lesson was my first PhD student who was 20 years older than me. Um, and, you know, yeah, had had a very uh, full career and was really pursuing the PhD because it was a passion project. Uh, but he, he put in the same level of vigor and effort into his PhD as he did into his consulting career, uh, which is full tilt. I mean, it's, you know, Katie bar the door, everything gets done and it gets done to the nth degree, but he writes in a very particular way. And I realized, okay, I've got a student who's 60 years old. I am not going to, retrain him on writing. That's just not going to happen. That was, that was his voice. It was he, his unique voice. It wasn't grammatically wrong. It wasn't technically wrong. There was nothing wrong with it at all. It's just not how I would do it. Well, you know what? I learned pretty quickly. It's like, uh, this is going to be his writing and it's not my place to try and make it sound like me. It's my place to give him, you know, constructive feedback on where things could be better and what things to emphasize and, and point out, you know, obvious grammatical or technical errors, but um, being the arbiter of style is, is not our jobs. Um, that's, that's for our students, our colleagues, our young colleagues and young professionals to determine on their own so that that style is unique to them. So I'm wondering if you ever had a, I guess, like an issue or a, um, a difficult situation with one of your students and what was that like and how did you go about resolving that? Do you feel that it was resolved? And that this goes for both Brett and, and Temi, I'll ask you as well. I'll go ahead and start. Um, I've been fortunate to have, I would say a majority of just very positive interactions and in, in relationships with students. And, you know, most of them I still talk to frequently. Uh, that's not to say that there haven't been struggles along the way. Um, you know, even with the people that I'm still in close contact with, 
um, and certainly struggles with the people that, that I don't talk to very much anymore. And some of that is just a personality conflict. <laughs> you know, it's uh, uh, sometimes you have to kind of recalibrate yourself um, in, in terms of meeting somewhere in the middle so that you can kind of provide a, you know, some sort of, you know, negotiation to a productive path forward. Um, very few times has the struggle been really anything technical. It's, it's always just comes down to personalities and work ethic and approach and expectation. And I gotta be honest and, and probably 99.9% of the things that have been problematic over the, the years have probably been my own doing, um, of not setting clear expectations, uh, not checking in often enough, not redirecting the work early enough, um, and letting it, the problems kind of compound to a point where, you know, uh, redirecting or doing a course correction becomes a lot more difficult. Um, so I'll, I'll take full ownership in all my flaws and all the, the things that I've done wrong and, and all the things I wish I could have done better or handled differently. Uh, but at the end of the day, a lot of times it just comes down to uh, personality incompatibility. Um, and that has in, in a couple of cases ended up where a student has, has switched from thesis to coursework uh, just because it's it's clear that it's not going to work. Um, that, you know, I'm, I'm fully happy to be their academic advisor, but being a research supervisor um, is just not going to work out. Um, sometimes you learn that you learn that before you ever enter into that relationship. Uh, and then sometimes you don't find out until you've gone down the road a little bit. Uh, but but coming up with a plan for getting both of you out of that situation before it becomes problematic is much more important than never getting into it in the first place because that's just impossible. You don't know unless you try. Um, so do I have regrets on how I've handled things in the past? Yes. Uh, would I do them differently now with the benefit of hindsight? Absolutely. Uh, but but all you know at the time is, is what you know and, and you make the, the best decision at the time and move forward. And that's, you know, what, what we all try and do in life, um, certainly what we try and do in our, our student advisor relationships. Um, but yeah, most of the time, it's just, it's just personality issues for the most part. You think talking communication um, sooner sounds like it would have helped things along sooner, if that makes sense. Yeah, communication sooner. But, but then also, I think a, a lot of the, those circumstances where it, you have had a, a student advisor relationship end uh, may have also been a part that it's not just communicating earlier. It's also allowing yourself to be open to communication and open to criticism and feedback, which probably early on in my career, I was very, you know, resistant to, I, I would have been, I, cause I think I was probably, you know, probably without even knowing it signaling that, Hey, we're, we're not going to have these types of conversations. And so the student may have felt like they couldn't approach me about this. Um, so there was never a earlier point. It just kind of builds up to the point where it's irreparable. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's not, it's so broken. It can't be fixed. Uh, so in, in those situations, you know, if, if a student feels that they're, they need to have some kind of conversation or, or communicate something to their advisor and, and they don't feel like they're in a position to be able to do that 
or whether it would be adversarial or they're just not sure how they are going to respond, you know, go through a, you know, intermediary, um, you know, talk to a colleague, um, you know, of, of your advisor first or the department chair and, and have that conversation. Um, you know, it's those conversations need to be had. It's much better to have them, Marissa, like you were saying earlier, even if it means going through a third party and kind of having somebody that can stand in the middle uh, a little bit and kind of serve as a mediator. Sure. I think that's uh, good actionable advice if someone, if a student does feel uncomfortable um, going to their professor, just seeking um, looking outside that relationship to seek counsel uh, and advice and, and maybe help that situation along. I appreciate it. Tammy, how about you? Um, any conflicts or issues? Doesn't have to be with Jack. We don't have to go there. But in a previous advisor uh, relationship or, or from what you've, in your experience? So with Jack, I think um, the conflicts are what I just mentioned earlier. I mean, the fact that sometimes these expectations might be too high and then, but with communication, you get to recalibrate and and then you get to work well with each other. Um, so, and of course, I I do not know in my four years, I mean, this is my fourth year working with Jack and I do not know of any student who, um, who probably had to quit because Jack asked the person to quit. Um, so, but but then even at that, I think I'm not very comfortable speaking for, um, I mean, maybe his relationship with past students, uh, but I can borrow a leaf from my two close friends who had to quit their PhDs. Um, they, they didn't necessarily quit, but they had to just leave with their masters. Um, so the first one, since I'm not mentioning names, I think I, it's easy to just, um, I mean, the, to talk about the lessons I learned from their relationships with their advisors. So the first friend, um, I think everything started going south for him when um, the expectations his advisor had of him and his own expectations weren't matching. Um, and, and unfortunately, they weren't communicating properly. And that's why communication is really, really, really key between an advisor. I, I, in fact, I, I believe that's what sets the tone for every other thing. If communication is good, most of the issues that will come up can be resolved, except probably um, maybe there is something fundamentally wrong. So they weren't communicating about their expectations until it was too late. And then all of a sudden, and I think it was also um, the, partly a fault of the advisor because the his advisor didn't really tell him what, I mean, what he expected. He just left him to, you know, try things out, you know, and then after one year, it was like, okay, so what have you been doing for the past one year? And there was really nothing to, nothing substantial to, to really show. Um, so, and that's because the issues or the challenges he was having within that one year, um, he wasn't, he was trying things out on his own. Um, he wasn't really seeking help. And so that's the fault of my, of, of my colleague, so to speak. He, when those issues were happening, I think he should have taken the initiative also to 
communicate or to seek for more communication with his advisor that I'm struggling. What's, um, what's, this is not working. What can we do? And all that. So I don't think any of that happened. And so, um, after like, after about almost two years, the advisor just came up with the fact that I think you have to live with a master. So he wasn't happy, but I mean, it was what it is. He couldn't, I don't think he would have been able to meet the requirements of the advisor. So there was no point wasting additional years. So I saw a lack of um, communication and maybe a little bit of um, personality um, differences. Um, for the second friend, um, I think the chief or the most important issue was the personality difference. Um, my friend was this creative um, kind of person who liked to do things um, a certain way, like um, like Brett mentioned. Um, but his advisor was a micromanager. He just wanted, I, I mean, it was somehow ridiculous because sometimes he, he, he needed, okay, one of the complaints of my friend was that um, every week, he needed to produce a full-blown report of his activities for that week. And so he said he ended up spending way more time just preparing weekly reports. How about we define what we really want to achieve within, um, within this um, semester or within this month, and then we work towards that goal. So he said he was expending more energy um, trying to write reports, and then those reports were, I mean, it was, and then it was super critical. It wasn't seeing him as a human. Uh, I mean, it was always um, happening on him. Um, and then it was the way it was, the, 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 the use of words. Yeah, he complained a lot about the use of words um, the advisor um, was using. I mean, uh, when I read some of it, actually showed me some of those things, and then I'm like, wow, uh, um, sorry, I, I not sure I can relate with this. And um, so it was that bad. And so in this case, it was the one that really that sought to just live with the masters. In this case, it was the student that decided he just wanted to leave. And so he he left with the, um, with, with the masters. So I think those are two of the closest um, cases I could say about real blown conflicts. And for this second friend of mine, uh, because the advisors, I mean, no, names withheld, um, the advisor was just starting out as an assistant professor. And so he needed um, he needed more PhD students and masters. And so he really didn't want him to, I think he was his second or he may be the first or second PhD student he had. So he really didn't want him to leave. So it becomes a power tussle. Oh, I want to leave. Oh, no, you're not leaving. And then my friend had to take it up at departmental level. They, then they had, and then when things were not getting resolved quickly, it escalated up to um, the college level where eventually everything was resolved. So I don't think it was a win-win for, for either party. Neither was it a win for, I mean, it was neither a win for the advisor nor a win for the, the student himself. But I think he said he just needed to leave because his mental health was was um, was already being battered and he just couldn't take it any longer. So for my second friend, like I said, I think it was personality incompatible. Um, they were not compatible personality-wise. And then I think the advisor just, um, just didn't... Maybe, I, I, maybe it's something that also takes place with time, maybe because he was just starting out as an assist assistant professor at that time, maybe that was why um, things worked that way, yeah.
That's interesting. That, that, that brings me back to when I was a graduate student and I visited the University of Florida, and that was advice that was given to me by some of the graduate students at the time, understanding what type of personality you have and making sure that it, it, it matches with your advisor, whether the advisor was a micromanager or you know somebody that gave you a lot of leeway. And it's, it's definitely something that's important. So understanding, I guess, from the student's perspective, understanding what type of a person you are and what you require from an advisor, and then seeking out somebody who can provide that for you. Um, and certainly as a, as a faculty member or, or as an advisor, you know, understanding or clearly uh, communicating to your potential students, hey, this is the type of person that I am. This is what I'm going to expect. Um, that can help clear up any miscommunications early on. And, you know, just to, I guess another thing that uh, Temi just mentioned that I think Brett made, Brett hit on earlier is the idea of, you know, certainly as a, as an advisor learning, you know, as through time, you know, what works, what doesn't work, what can I do better and constantly sort of reevaluating sounds like uh, in, in Temi's case, his friend um, encountered somebody who perhaps hadn't gone through those, um, learning uh, or those lessons um, and hadn't hadn't quite had a chance to apply them yet. So had they interacted, you know, 10 years down the line, maybe the relationship would have worked out, but um, the timing was 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 unfortunate. So I think a lot of great a lot of great stuff here in terms of what, you know, we can what certainly for me as I listen, certain things that I currently do and things that I can do better and things that I try to do better as I kind of evolve. Um, but also a lot of great, a lot of great stuff for for students too, right? Things that they can do to try to uh, make sure their their relationship with their advisor is as positive as it can be. Yeah, what this whole conversation just sounds like to me, um, it kind of brings me back to our mentor episode um, with with Matt Malay from from the Erdic, who's also my mentor. We've done a lot of kind of personal development kind of things together. Um, and I have like two things on my mind before I forget. <clears throat> the first is, and we don't have to stay on this topic very much, but um, it's listening to these stories, um, especially what uh, what we're hearing about conflicts between students and advisors is, per- it comes down to personality and whether or not either person, the student or the advisor is open to criticism is um, open to being reflective of themselves and how they're being perceived open to open to to empathy and putting themselves in the other person's shoes and seeing where that other person is coming from um, and that takes a lot personally, individually, um, on both sides. So it's not something that is inherently given in any relationship. This goes for, for, I guess, any relationship, whether it's a friendship, um, a, a, uh, more mature, I guess, romantic relationship. Um, any of those, uh, um, require both individuals to even be open and to have that kind of communication in the first place. And that's not something that you can necessarily change yourself. You can try to point it out, but I think maybe in Temi's friends cases, um, they, it wasn't going to happen. That professor wasn't ready or wasn't able to see that at that time. And it was probably, it sounded like it was better for them to exit that, 
it kind of seemed a little bit toxic relationship, um, just kind of draining emotionally and mentally and, and knowing when to step away. And I think that's also important. Um, if, if someone is in a situation like that or, and it, and you've tried different avenues, maybe, um, not all avenues have been tried, like considering, uh, Brett mentioned going to a mediator or going to a colleague to help navigate, um, that relationship and make it better to see it through. But it's also knowing at what point you need to protect yourself and, and realize that this isn't going to be fruitful or productive for either party and removing yourself from that situation. I do, um, I just, I guess, want to recognize that that is also an option if, um, if, you'd feel uncomfortable, um, over a prolonged period of time. And, uh, I guess the second thing, cause I definitely forgot what the second thing was, but, um, this reminds me a lot of, um, Radical Candor is a podcast slash book slash life, le- life lesson, um, or life preaching teachings, about uh, caring personally and challenging directly. So a lot of what I've heard from these stories, both from Brett, from John, from Timmy, is that what makes a good advisor is still caring personally about your students, seeing them as human beings, but being firm and challenging them when appropriate uh, in order to make, I guess, not make them a better person, but like uh, you're, you're challenging them in order for them to grow um, in a positive way. You're not challenging them to demoralize them or in a negative way, uh, any not negative connotation, of course, but it's, it's, I think that's what maybe sets a good advisor from a great advisor. Um, and I will mention that um, before this episode, we actually sent out a Google form response uh, or a Google form poll uh, on LinkedIn to our networks about this topic to get feedback from our colleagues um, and and general networks. And we got five responses, which is, again, non-zero. So I'll take it. And to summarize, I think um, the biggest dichotomy that we've noticed, um, so I guess of the five responses, four of them were master's students and one of them was a PhD student. We asked them to rate their advisor on a scale of one to five, one being not great, five being the best. And we had one rating of two, one rating of three, and three ratings of four out of five. And of the responses, um, they had we asked them similar questions of what are the qualities that you look for in an advisor, the expectations, how was your experience, do you feel that your advisor cared about you, what could your advisor do better, or how did your advisor help you succeed. What I noticed, uh, what it boiled down to was having an advisor that was present and personally cared about the student's success all around versus an advisor that was hard to get a hold of, provided minimal guidance or input, um, defined the ratings and the perceived relationship or success of the relationship. And to me, that sounds like having an advisor that did act like a mentor that served as in the mentoring role versus 
one who just took it as an advisor role seemed to be a way more positive quality and an overall more positive experience. Um, and some of the qualities that they um, that these responses specifically noted on that um, I heard here was a positive reputa- rep- uh, reputation. So Temi mentioned Jack receiving teaching awards and that mattered to him. That sounds like he had a positive reputation for being a good teacher among his colleagues and students, um, maybe inside and outside the university. Uh, There's been a lot of talk about communication and transparency, um, whether that's through publications, meeting regularly with your team or with your students, being available for your students, and providing feedback and guidance on the research as well as other professional development opportunities, whether that's networking, uh, searching for jobs, internships, uh, which classes should you take, um, how to navigate the grant or proposal writing process, navigating and understanding the funding process if they are interested in staying in academia, for example. And it could be even as, as simple as can you help me with this data analysis task? Maybe they um, are ha- had lacked that in their earlier studies or are trying to learn a new technique uh, from their advisor and things. So um, those are those are some of the qualities that came out of the um, came out of the poll. Uh, but I noticed that a lot of those uh, were heard here today. Um, so. Um, I guess I'm wondering if either of you have any thoughts on like radical candor and, and the poll results. Marissa, I'll just chime in with one thing that based on what you were just talking about um, really kind of stood out to me is that there's this, there's this thing called Lohman's 2D model of exemplary teaching. And I think in a lot of ways it, it also applies to um, student mentor relationships. And basically it goes that, you know, that the, kind of the two axes, hey, we're all engineers and scientists, so we love plots. So, you know, we've got a basically a graph or, or some kind of table with, with two dimensions. And, and one dimension is um, intellectual merit. And the other dimension is interpersonal rapport. And you can kind of be somewhat effective by maximizing one or the other, but you can't have a fully productive, fully impactful, good relationship unless you find a compromise between the two. And that's going to be different for every single person, both in the classroom and in the relationships with their students. Um, but I think it, it kind of somewhat underscores this kind of push-pull um, tension that we've been talking about for the past hour about you know people that maybe are a little closed off and maybe um, inflexible, um, that, that can't really develop that connection with their students. Um, so really cannot maximize interpersonal rapport, but in terms of intellectual merit, you know, might be, you know, some preeminent scholar in the field, you know? Um, but, but really the, I think the more productive relationships come in some sort of negotiated balance between those two things, uh, where you, you may not be excelling in either one or the other, but you can find, uh, kind of a happy medium in between. Yeah, I, I and also in, I, I I think that balance is um like a, I would okay I won't belabor matters but yeah that balance is, is is really key. Um, what I've noticed is students also have um 
different levels of um, expectations in the sense that what one student might call micromanaging is what another another student would call, oh, he's really hands-on and he's really helping me out with everything. Uh, so understanding um, the uniqueness of, of, of each, each I, mean, I mean, the advisor understanding the uniqueness of each student and then I, and also speaking as a student, trying to understand yeah, because truth be told, um, I mean, I'm a student, right? Quite all right. But sometimes I've seen the attitude of my fellow students with the advisors. And sometimes when they are complaining, okay, I'm, I really struggle to refrain myself from telling them that, you know, you could have done this better. You know, you, you know, your advisor isn't hundred percent wrong, you know? So, yeah. So students also need, they need to make the effort to understand um, um, the, the, the kind of person or the advisor. And of course, the, the, the first responsibility of the student would be getting to know the advisor before making the move or before deciding to work with, I mean, with the advisor, that should be the first responsibility. But then after making that decision to work with the advisor, um, I, I like what Marissa said about, you know, this is also applicable to all forms of relationship. So let's say in a romantic relationship, you, you've decided to um, be with someone. I mean, you cannot continue to keep second guessing if you made the right decision with your partner or not. You've got to get to that point where you're like, oh, yes, I've made this decision. Now, the next step is how do I make things good? I mean, how do I make this relationship? What efforts am I? How do I make this relationship work? What efforts am I making? And what efforts are this other person also making? I think that is where um, sometimes we, we miss it too as, as, as students. Yeah. So if a um, student is happening, I mean, if a student happens to be hearing this, I think, yeah, there is also that part, that personal responsibility on the part of the, of the student. Um, and then I also like one thing you said about, um, uh, Marisa, what you said about the responses where, um, the, the student expects, the advisors to help them grow. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm just paraphrasing what you, what you said. Um, I've seen, like in the case of my advisor, he doesn't shy away from exposing you to different opportunities, um, sending you out for conferences. Um, I mean, I mean, as recently as last year, he didn't care about the cost. He sent a couple of us to, to the coastal conference, ICC in Australia, even though it was quite expensive. Um, not many advisors do that, but I, I see that effort on his part. He he tries to to expose the students to what he thinks would make them grow, and also he also, I mean, advisors should also ask students. Um, I I know Jack does that with all of us. What are your career expectations? So those are conversations he, he has he usually has with his students even before starting um, starting um, the program. And from time to time, they check, okay, so what are your expectations now? So I, I think, yeah, so it's a two-way thing. And that balance, like Brett rightly said, needs to be uh, created between uh, the advisor, the effort the advisor is putting in, and the student, and also the effort the student is putting in. One one thing I think, at the risk of launching into um, you know, the second hour of the podcast, but I think 
I would be remiss if I didn't point out, um, and I don't think I would have completely gotten everything out that, that I thought needed to be said, um, is that it, it's clearly not all Skittles and rainbows and unicorns um, with the, the dynamic between advisors and, and their students. And the one thing that really complicates this is that there's a very real power dynamic. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it is real and it's enforced and it's very kind of tangible. And other times it's, it's there, it's subtle, it's implied, it's nuanced. But unlike in a professional setting uh, where you might have a direct relationship with a supervisor uh, or some kind of mentor, you, you have an institutional framework around you with resources at your disposal to where your, your ability to do your job, um, you know, the security of your job is not necessarily dictated by one person in the way that it is in a student advisor relationship. Even though students do have access to institutional support to help kind of navigate and negotiate these, these awkward relationships and exchanges and expectations, um, the students don't always know about it. And the universities don't always make a good job of, of making those resources known and readily available. So there really is a, a very, very real and very tangible power dynamic between the student and the advisor that can play out, which in many cases will prevent the student from being an advocate for themselves, which is what they should be doing. Um, it's one thing for our domestic students, right? Because they their position in, in this country is, is solidified. They've got the luxury of, of being a citizen. Doesn't matter whether they're getting a degree and supported on research or not. But imagine this power dynamic playing out in a situation where you've got an advisor working with an international student whose visa status in the U.S. is tied to their, you know, degree program at the university. And that degree program might very well be tied to the funding that they're, be, they're receiving as, as a student researcher. Um, so the student can, in many ways, feel very disadvantaged um, in terms of being willing to advocate for themselves and, and kind, of, kind of find a way to negotiate these, these awkward and, and sticky points in the relationships. Uh, but they, they definitely do need to find a way to do that. And in most cases, there are resources there to support them. Um, but the student advisor relationship is in many ways... I'll, I'll use the word intimate, not in a creepy way, uh, but in in a more direct sense of the word than it is in a professional setting where you've got a lot of other people and, and resources and, and, and things around you. This is true. That is a whole, whole other dynamic to to navigate. Yeah, that, that's uh, those are great points. And, you know, certainly as, as, as an advisor in an institution, whether we have a high number of international students, you make up it's a great point. It's a great point. And I've seen, unfortunately, I've seen faculty members take advantage of that relationship. Um, so I've seen it when it's gone bad. And I've actually stepped in, in some cases, to rescue people that were stuck in a, in, in a, in a bad relationship like that. So um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a complicated relationship. And I think at the end of the day, the faculty student relationship is that it's a relationship just like any other relationship it requires effort uh sometimes it's not always great there's bumpy spots there's smooth spots um 
and it takes communication just like in any relationship, right. To get through those. Um, so I think that's, you know, it takes work. It's not always going to be easy. Certainly. I want to say thank you to both of our guests. You've been absolutely amazing. Quite, quite honestly, this was one of my favorite shows and you can tell by the length of it. Um, a lot of great information out there. Really appreciate what you shared with us. Um, as we wrap up, we have a couple of very quick statements. Uh, first of all, student and new professionals chapter of ASBPA has a mentoring program. I just spoke with my mentee today. Great conversation. If you haven't signed up yet, I really urge you to sign up either as a mentor or a mentee. Um, you can do so by uh, sending an email to asbpa.snp at gmail.com. And the second announcement is if you want to be a part of the uh, of the Going Coastal podcast, um, you can be seen and heard where it matters. You can share your story in top coastal and ocean podcast and on Coastal News Today. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, please contact Tyler Buckingham at Tyler at CoastalNewsToday.com or simply go to CoastalNewsToday.com backslash advertising. Thank you and we'll talk to you next month.